Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Once again, to Americans watching the footy, this is episode six. This is our round one recap, and tonight is a historic or an historic episode, and it is the first one that we are actually recording in person. Hi, this is Benjamin. That was Ethan, and we are actually in the same room. I am home from Berkeley on my spring break, and I don't know, this just feels really nice to actually have a conversation with Ethan that's at a normal pace and not dependent on a one to two second lag. And hopefully that'll just capture our natural dynamic as brothers a lot better and we'll carry over into a more lively conversation on the footy. And hopefully it'll just make the editing process easier. Honestly, that's more important. And on top of that, we aren't going to talk over each other as much. We can like raise our hand to tell the other to shut up or whatever. But here, let's let's prove that we're actually in person. High five. I think that captured it. I mean, anyway, we could fake that. We could fake that. Yeah, but... I was thinking that, but this seemed to be the best way to, to prove it. Anyway, how was your weekend outside of footy? Honestly, I rested a lot and I stayed on that footy sleeping schedule somewhat. I'm just glad to be home for a bit. I've had a pretty busy week with a lot of midterms and they were actually somewhat in the middle of the term, which was nice. We went over this last time, but that's over with now. And so is round one, and it was a jam-packed round one spread out over five nights, which meant no overlapping matches, which was nice for an introduction to the season that we were waiting for for quite a while. I should also note, I'm back home today as well. I was in Indiana for the NCAA tournament. For those of you that aren't so familiar with American geography, Indiana is in the Great Lakes region. It's the state east of Chicago, Illinois, and it's in the eastern time zone, which... Well, I had a good time there. I got to see some great basketball. It's not good for footy because those 1 a.m. start times on the West Coast are 4 a.m. on the East Coast. So there were times I was struggling to stay awake, some things that, as we'll get to later, had to go back and watch after the fact. I mean, it's interesting to kind of watch a match knowing what happens, but not how it happened. So you get a combination of perspectives here, but I definitely enjoy being back on the West Coast just from the standpoint that it's easier to stay up and watch. I don't know how some of you like Craig from A Yank on the Footy, who I believe is in Ohio. I don't know how you guys do it on the East Coast. Brian Barish as well. It's I'm amazed. I have a tough enough time staying awake during the typical school week. So to think about how y'all with actual work lives do it, it just impresses me more and more. I just you guys just must be working the night shift normally to make that possible. Either that or you just have no circadian rhythm whatsoever, in which case I admire your sacrifice, but at what cost? Or go to bed really early, get up really early, but I prefer the go to bed really late, get up really late. Anyway, it's a lot easier on the West Coast. That's my main point. Indiana was a good time, though. 
All right. Without further ado, I don't think there's much else we need to cover. I think we're just ready to jump in. I don't think there's any breaking news that supersedes anything. If there was, this would be the time to insert it. Really, I think we'll be covering a lot of the news that's breaking tonight and within the past day or two in our round two preview where that will be more applicable. Look out for that a day or two after this episode drops. But yeah, we're going to get right into things with the grand final rematch between Melbourne and the Western Bulldogs. Melbourne came home by 26 points. Melbourne 14-13-97 defeated Bulldogs 11-5-71. And there were some kind of scary similarities to this grand final from last year, just in terms of the runs that the teams went on. Game started 29-2 to Melbourne, then the Bulldogs scored the next 49 points, then the D's fought back and led 68-53 by the half, so a 49-0 run for the Bulldogs, and then a 39-point run for Melbourne before they really asserted control more in the fourth. And just like the grand final, Melbourne gave up eight goals in a row and won again, and Christian Petraka's totals were scarily similar in the main categories. He had 39-2 and two in the grand final, that historic 39 disposals tying Simon Black's record, and he had 38-2 and two in round one. The difference is he wasn't so much a two-man show with Max gone. He was really taking the lead. Gone was pretty quiet, actually. Bulldogs did a good job shutting him down, but Petraka was everywhere. He was tremendous. That was a Brownlow-worthy performance, I think, he gets three votes for sure. It's amazing just to see how much he can control a game. And then you also think, wait, they also have Clayton Oliver who can do the same thing at times. That's kind of scary. I mentioned this in our team by team preview episode three. If those two trade off performances like that, is it possible that they're going to prevent each other from winning the Brownlow? Also pretty solid performance from Jake Bowie. He had been thrust into the scene with some of the injuries to this back line, which seemed to be continuing on and piling up, and he did a nice job. Other takeaways? Well, round one was not nearly as clearance predicated as the grand final was. In fact, the Bulldogs won clearances uh, 41 to 30, but it was just a dominant overall control performance by Melbourne, even though they left a lot of points on the oval in, in the first. It makes me wonder just what the margin would be without the combination of Stephen May and Tom McDonald on the back line. It was huge that May was able to play despite his injury concerns. And May was pretty solid, looking like one of the more veteran leaders for sure. It was also interesting to see so much of Ben Brown, which was kind of fun for us. It was kind of full circle, going back to the second match we ever watched from that Round one in 2020, he was pretty good, though we did miss a couple that looked like pretty easy shots. His reaction to one of them was pretty good. And yeah, he's in good spirits, even in a pretty competitive scene like that. I found it very interesting that he had three goals three different ways. Usually, we think of him as just long run-up guy, you know, chariots of fire, music-worthy. But his first goal was a right snap, and his third was a right banana. Those were definitely both unexpected and very welcome. A couple other key moments. There was a chance for the Bulldogs to pull ahead even further during that 49-0 run. And Josh Shackey really blew one where he kind of got caught in between. Like, do I kick it? Do I give it off to a teammate? Do I take the set shot? And they ended up coming away with nothing. I believe they led 45-29 at the time. And they still got another goal after it. But you just wonder if they push that margin 
Say they get that six instead of maybe they're up 28 instead of 22. Does that change the whole complexion of the game? We've talked a lot within our family, with our father in particular, about just how streaky of a sport AFL can be in terms of scoring runs. There are a couple other games this round that indicate that. So that is definitely a lingering question. There was also a blown chance from Aaron Naughton late in the third quarter. He thought he had Tom Libertore with him when he only had Christian Petraka going with him. And also, I don't think either of us realized Aaron Naughton is only 22. And that's scary considering how much he took over in the forward half in the early to mid second and just was a really important force overall. This wasn't the Bulldogs night by any means, but Aaron Naughton looked tremendous, especially in the first half. And when you have him and Bontempelli and so much more, it's definitely a reason for positivity, even on a night that just ultimately didn't belong to them. I think he's showing that he could be not just a prominent player, but a superstar in this game. Even if he's not quite as compelling visually as Bailey Smith, I think he's a heck of a player. Fans that just want to see something right away, they'll see the headband, assuming he keeps that up. He played a hell of a game, and I would think he'd get two votes in that round low polling when it's all said and done. I'd say he is still quite visible between the hair and also just his verticality. He's taken some... High flyers already in his young career, and there was definitely a couple of those in the opening match. And then also, you were talking about how Max Gone was neutralized for a lot of it. A lot of that was because of Tim English playing forward more. That kept Gone further back in response. And I'd say English did well for himself, at least in the first half, I noticed, with Stefan Martin out. I also noticed Caleb Daniel, his footwork along the boundary is tremendous. He was a lot of fun to watch. If you look at some of the more prominent voices in the footy world, whether that be Fox or Seven commentators, there were far more negatives than positives regarding the Bulldogs. There was a lot of questioning about playing Tom Libertor up front instead of in his normal midfield spot. But with Bontempelli questionable this coming week, that would open up a spot for him if need be. And it was a very quiet game for Libertor where maybe he was misused a bit. I didn't think the Bulldogs played that poorly outside of not getting much from Libertor. I just thought Melbourne was just the superior team other than for that pretty prominent stretch in the second quarter. And I think a big part of Melbourne asserting themselves in the third was the emergence of Bailey Fritch. He had been invisible after the first few minutes with Bailey Williams on him. Jeez, there were four Baileys in that game, and the one that emerged ended up being the only one who spells his name B-A-Y-L-E-Y. There are three Baileys on the Bulldogs, which is probably one of the strangest name statistics out there, along with maybe the hyphenated stuff from North Melbourne. Spoiler alert. Yeah, um, spoiler spoiler for sure. I thought it was interesting, you know, Fritsch was my pick to score the first goal of the season. It ended up being Langdon, and Fritsch had a very quiet first half, but when he gets going, it really puts Melbourne over the edge. And Langdon... Also was impactful in the long run, not necessarily as much with his feet, but with his hands. He started a couple nice sequences in the middle quarters. I also really appreciated some of the contributions that Angus Brayshaw had playing a bit higher than normal. But overall, Melbourne definitely had more of a defense first mindset compared to clearances and starting the midfield as they did in the grand final. They denied a lot of movement for the dogs up front. They won back the ball thanks to that awesome back line. And then they just punished the mistakes that the dogs made in coverage further down the field. 
It's interesting when you look at the fantasy points, the Bulldogs actually have six of the top eight because you have three guys tied for six. But of those top five, the only one for the Demons to crack to was Petraka, who came second to Bailey Smith. Smith also had the uh, tackles going his way with 11 of those. I was thinking that it would be Petraka and then Smith and Naughton for the two and the one. We are definitely much more forward-minded, just scoring-minded as newer fans. And I just thought Naughton, what he did all over the field, stood out. There was a wow factor to what he did, whether it was on the back half, the middle half. He's such an interesting player because he can kind of cover any spot he needs to. Someone else that we haven't talked about yet, and I'm not sure how he is in terms of the rankings, but having Luke Jackson as another more than solid ruck rover emerging like that alongside Max Gone is a scary prospect. I was thinking about the SpongeBob, what could be worse than a giant paint bubble meme here? What could be worse than a game-changing Melbourne Ruck Rover? Two game-changing Melbourne Ruck Rovers in Gone and Jackson. The numbers didn't do Jackson justice. He had 72 fantasy points, 12 disposals, but I thought he was just awesome. He was everywhere on the field, even if it wasn't reflected in meters gained or anything. He is that's a game-changing presence. And again, just the combination of him and God is really pick your poison. I think more often than not, teams are going to pick Jackson. But nonetheless, you're going to have a choice to make there. And unless you can somehow match up with both of those, which very few teams can do, you're in for a rough night. And whichever one you can't match up against, they go further up the ground and wreak havoc there. The other thing I want to get to, of course, because how can we not talk about it? <laughs> Off the Oval... The media fiasco that started with Luke Beveridge's press conference and ended really in Tom Morris being stood down, either resigning or getting fired. I'm still not sure which from Fox footy. Ethan, you're the media studies student here. I want to hear your take on it just in terms of the various dynamics that emerged through that. Well, first off, I'm not sure what info should have been leaked from the Bulldogs and what shouldn't. But that's not Tom Morris's fault. Either he's got an informant or someone in the Bulldogs camp isn't keeping quiet or something. So if Beveridge wanted to keep things quiet, he needs to tie up those ends and have the rest of his club tie up those ends. He snapped a little bit, probably went a little bit more than he should, but I think it was still a little overblown. It was interesting, though, to hear him, you know, basically call out Tom Morris for being a Melbourne homer. Those preferences are always there, but it's uncommon that they're actually acknowledged in the media unless you know you're a former player it's not like this is Gary Lyon we're talking about and he's had his own fair share of controversies off the field but when you're a reporter who hasn't played for anyone it's often overlooked and then there's the other things that leak apparently from one of Tom Morris's friends or someone in that group chat clearly I have no idea what would cause them to do that. But honestly, from an American perspective, the way everything emerged and the topic of it, maybe tangentially or more like more like a secant, I guess. I think it touched on multiple places. Reminded me of the whole Jeremy Roenick fiasco with NBC a couple years ago. You just took that geometry reference to a level that's going to go over everyone's heads, but that was pretty good. Yeah, I didn't think most of what Morris said was that bad, except towards the end. And then you could tell, you know, there were some slang terms that probably, from an American perspective, get glossed over because we just don't quite get it. But it was obviously much more severe if you're in the know. And obviously, 90-something percent of his audience is going to know that. So that stuff can't happen. I think you're talking more about 
the first video from that WhatsApp chat than the second one where he says, I forget exactly what it is, but none of it's good. I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm a, which at the end of the day kind of implies I'm white and I'm a guy, so don't treat me like shit. Yeah, there was a lot more to that second video. The first video was, it wasn't a good look, but it wasn't devastating. The second video was much more prominent. And I'm wondering, you know, how far things would have gone had the leak stopped after the first one. And I'm still unsure as to, you know, where the second one emerged from, but that's probably a conversation for another time. At the end of the day, though, I'm glad that he ended up being stood down, although I kind of wish that there had been a more forward stance by Fox Sports in their action. And I'm also interested in seeing, you know, their response to the beverage incident in response. It seems like they kind of backed off the harsh angle against him as a result of Morris being stood down. But I'm wondering how much of that is because some of them are taking Beverage's side a bit more or if they're just trying to avoid any connection with Tom Morris after all of that. I think it was just the news cycle. It was going to be gone another day or two. Maybe it'll be referenced in jest after the Bulldogs play this week, but I don't think it was going to go on that much longer. It seemed like something that would last you know, in a 48-hour cycle, and it did. We did go on a little longer about this game because, A, it's a grand final rematch. B, it's the season opener. C, the Tom Morris-Luke Beveridge thing. There were a couple other kind of tangential things I did want to touch on. First off, some of the camera angles they had on some of the free kicks on goal were awesome. Perspective from sort of on par with sort of the higher levels of the G, and you could really tell right away if a shot was going in or not. And I just really enjoyed that, and I hope that stays. One other thing that I think is getting mixed responses is, is, you know, the idea of having a grand final rematch round one, the idea of opening with anything other than Richmond versus Carlton. What do you think? Honestly, I don't mind Richmond versus Carlton not being the opener. I'm glad that that was still a round one match, and I'm glad that that still had its Thursday slot, but I don't mind changing up the opener. I think that the defending champion has the right to open the season, like what we see in America with the NFL and sometimes with baseball, though not as much. But this season's different because it's really the return of fans at full capacity everywhere except Western Australia for now. We'll see about that. But in that respect, especially with the grand final having been pushed out of state, I get having the rematch in round one. Otherwise, I think wait a few rounds, build up the hype within the current season and have it maybe round four, five, six. Definitely, I like the idea of having the defending champion open and open at home. That is something the NFL gets right, and the NFL doesn't get a lot right, but I thought that was pretty cool. And, you know, at least make it a match with some ulterior storyline, whether it be, you know, team with some new young addition or teams with a history that maybe they played at some point during the finals. But I thought overall, that's probably the best way to do it, is make sure that you have the defending champion in there. You know, they get to raise their flag, have their ceremony. Having all the Melbourne greats back was pretty cool. Especially when, again, a lot of them were unable to be there for the grand final, and that includes Nathan Jones. It was great to see him, you know, right there alongside everyone. It was great seeing Ron Barassi Jr. right there. I know he was distraught at having to miss the big day. We talked a little bit about Carlton and Richmond already, and I think that talk about the scheduling leads nicely into, well, the typical Thursday night match between the Blues and the Tigers. Carlton 14-17-101 defeated Richmond 11-10-76. 
Welcome to the Michael Voss era. Don't know how I didn't realize this at the time, but spoilers if for some reason you haven't caught everything yet. Three debutante coaches, all round one victors. Carlton outscoring Richmond 47-7 in the fourth quarter. It was such an interesting game because there were so many twists and turns. You know, Carlton really dominated the even-numbered quarters. Richmond really dominated the odd-numbered quarters. Richmond scored a total of nine points in the two even-numbered quarters as opposed to 67 between the first and third. So it was a game with a lot of swings. Each team, I believe, had a 20-plus point lead at one point. I think the largest lead on either side was... 25, which was what it ended up with. It was just a super interesting swing, and it was cool for me for the first time really getting to understand, man, Carlton's a big-time club with big-time support, and for the last decade, they haven't had a ton to be excited about. So between the crowd shots and just the reactions overall, it was really cool to see a team that I haven't really thought much about in two years of watching footy, really getting to see them have their moment. And this could just be a flash in the pan, but like those looks of joy mixed with shock on the blue supporters' faces were really fun. Almost as fun as when they show the lyrics of the fight song on the ribbon boards around the stadium that it actually says, da 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 I get a kick out of that every time. Well, they sang it that way in the change rooms on the rare occasion. Well, in the past rare. We don't know how rare it'll be now on the occasion that they win. I was shocked by just how prominent their midfield was even without Sam Walsh. It's honestly kind of ridiculous looking at that lineup now, again, after Carlton not having been as exciting or in it as they should have been these past couple years. Patrick Cripps had an excellent game. He had three goals, I believe, 3-0. Kennedy was everywhere, but also but also the Blues debutants in the midfield. Adam Chera, George Hewitt both had There are moments I think they both had goals along with just good possession metrics. It's looking to be potentially a very deep midfield and that would allow Cripps to play more forward. Same with Chera. I think getting Sam Walsh back is just going to make that group even scarier. And even with Harry Mackay and Charlie Kernow quiet, really no problem. And that's another thing to put fear into the opposition, considering the Blues' major forwards were off and they still had the night that they had. I was going to say, Mackay kicked 1-1, Kernow kicked 0-2, and they managed to still surge in that fourth quarter. That said, through the first three quarters, things were looking pretty positive for Richmond. You saw, first off, the Noongar tandem of Shea Bolton and Marlon Pickett both looking terrific early on. I think there's something to build off there. Unfortunately for them, Dion Prestia's hamstring injury sounds pretty serious, so he may be down for a while. That could be a couple months. Noah Balta looked really good in the third quarter. His versatility was on display. But I think the biggest difference was Carlton just being the faster team. Their speed out of center bounces, their overall team speed, even though they had a few times where players slipped on the open ground, they were just faster. And they overwhelmed a Richmond team that's usually able to beat you out wide, do so many different things. Carlton was able to just kind of run straight at him at times. A couple stats that just really jumped out. Carlton were clearly the dominant team in clearances, 40-22. to No, this wasn't a game that was entirely predicated on clearances, just like the opener wasn't, but it was definitely a factor. And then a testament to what Carlton was able to do defensively to shut down Richmond 
14 tackles in the forward 50 to Richmond's one, which also demonstrates the value of the speed that the Blues have in their forward half. Another really nice sign for Carlton was how well Mitch McGovern transitioned from a forward into a new backline role. He surged forward at times as well and contributed to that speed very nicely. What other points do we have? Well, I thought Oscar McDonald got off to a terrible start, losing guys a couple times, and then he seemed to settle in. I mean, this is a team where the back line was really weak the last couple of years, and they weren't great, but they were a lot better. And even after Eddie Betts' retirement, boy, they look good up front, and their midfield looked terrific. This was just an entertaining watch. I don't know how high their ceiling is. I don't know how much of this was just a flash in the pan. This could be, you know, pure adrenaline, round one, playing a rival that's had your number for a decade, first game with a new coach. But there's something tangible there to build off of if you're Carlton. Now, one thing that is going to remain from this game and is not going anywhere is the video of Sam Doherty's goal. He got the treatment like a guy gets after a first career goal. And I think it's safe to say that's going to be prominent for a long time because that was a special moment that's so much bigger than football. I mean, I think even Richmond fans enjoyed that. When you look at the end of year highlights, when they're doing the brown low and everything, that's going to be right up at the top. That was good for footy. All right. Friday night footy at Marvel. Collingwood a 17-point win over host St. Kilda. St. Kilda 12-13-85 to Collingwood's 15-12-102. Obviously, the big headline here was Nick Dacos, who had a terrible early blunder to give the Saints an early goal, and other than that, was really good. He just looked composed. He looked like a seasoned veteran instead of a rookie on debut. And he was playing halfback with Scott Pendlebury, which is an interesting combination. I have a feeling that Pendlebury was filling the hole that Brayden Maynard left with his two-game suspension for the time being. We'll see how much of that remains once Maynard is back. Other things that we noted early on, Pat Lipinski is a welcome addition for... A welcome addition? I think he's in the early running for one of the best additions of the offseason. Yeah, I guess I'm more understated there. Admittedly, this was a game where I was not nearly as alert as the past couple. I had a very long Thursday, which contributed to that, but Ethan saw this one in full, and I went back and watched a lot of it. The other thing that I noted early on is, here we go again with Max King's errant kicking. You know, it's funny. You see people listing St. Kilda as a potential team that's kind of in their win-now window. I don't think they're very good. I think they could be way down at the bottom of the ladder, and this just kind of helps reinforce that. You know, I'd like to see them be good because they've had such a long history of sucking, but there's a lot of reason to doubt them, and I feel like not enough experts talked about them as a team that could be way down the ladder. That was something that I had definitely identified when we did our preview, and I'm patting myself on the back for sounding smart. Also of note, Jordan Ngoi looked like he hadn't missed a beat. He played really well up front. Unfortunately, Mason Cox didn't play so well. Also, his goggles looked really goofy. It's not a bad thing. You can go ahead and do it, but it was like, did he have some sort of eye damage or something you'd be thinking to yourself? But, I mean, he was basically wearing, like, they looked like very tight swimming goggles. You know, like, all black. It was weird. I know that Cox also got... He could be questionable for this week. Um, Definitely an opportunity for Darcy Cameron to 
reassert himself as he did in the middle and latter thirds of last campaign. Tim Memory had a lot of activity in the forward end, a lot of touches, but didn't often lead to great results early on. He ended up with a decent stat line for the night, uh, kicking 3-2 to go with 13 disposals. But I thought he was another player who was a little bit underrated. And if he kind of gets involved as kind of that middleman setting up goals for St. Kilda, he could end up being a pretty significant player. Jack Hayes, definitely the most positive sign for the Saints, kicking three goals. He was pretty prominent in that third quarter where the Saints made a push after getting down double digits. That really changed the game. They were down as much as, I think, 36 or 37 looking at the scoreworm, and they drew even at one point early in the fourth, and Jack Hayes was an enormous part of that. So there's a bright spot on a night where I didn't think St. Kilda had very many bright spots. You know, a 17-point margin doesn't reflect just how poorly I think things went for the Saints overall. And then, obviously, on the coaching side of things, for St. Kilda, Brett Ratton's 2022 gets off to an inauspicious start, to say the least. I'm wondering as well if Ratton's time with the Saints peaked with that elimination final win over the Bulldogs in 2020. Meanwhile, for Collingwood, the Craig McRae era begins successfully, and seems like Collingwood is just kind of asserting themselves more, playing more up front under McRae than they were near the back half of the Buckley era. I don't know how much of that is, you know, similar to Carlton the night before. First match under a new coach, round one, adrenaline, but they looked pretty darn effective and enthusiastic. And I think there's something to go off there for sure. They definitely have a new identity that I think fits their talent well. And they've got a bit of an age range talent-wise, which is interesting. They've got that youth in the day classes and a couple others, but they also have that older top end with the pieces from their grand final push in 2018 and a couple from their flag in 2010 in terms of Pendlebury and Sidebottom. I have no idea how long those pieces will be sticking around. I'm interested in seeing how that sort of changeover between those you know, few-year classes happens for Collingwood and how much they'll be able to weather the storm of those prominent figures leaving them at some point. Speaking of teams that maybe toward the end of eras, Ethan and I as well were very enthused about the way that the Cats came out to start the season, winning 2018-138-11-672 over Essendon. This was really a start-to-finish domination where even though Essendon nearly got doubled up, I think their final scoring total does sugarcoat some things, which is uh, not good. Yeah, I was really curious how the Cavs were going to come out between missing the likes of Mitch Duncan, having notoriously poor round one starts the last few years, but they looked terrific from start to finish. You know, a 47.7 goal first quarter, Tom Hawkins with four goals in the first 24 minutes of clock time, Tyson Stengel with four goals, he looked amazing. During the season preview, I had mentioned there were three guys who really didn't do much last year that needed to be better. And two of those really stepped up prominently in Mark Blitzovs and Reese Stanley. Having Stanley back in the ruck actually worked really well because it allowed Asalva Radagalea to take some of his big forward marks. I mean, he's a big, strong dude, and it is fun to watch 
them doing their thing. And also when Radagolea got banged up by Sam Draper, who ended up copping a $2,000 fine for that, it didn't hurt nearly as much. Sam Draper played an awful game, by the way. Not trying to be biased or whatever, but he did not play well. He had an awful game, despite winning the hitout battle pretty distinctly. He had 33 hitouts, and for the game, hitouts went to Essendon 45-33. It really led to very little, and I thought Geelong was great out of the center circle, which is so rare. I think this is the first time Chris Scott really let the guys play to their style instead of making them play his style, and it worked really well. You had Brendan Parfit attacking directly. Great to have him back. Great to have Tom Stewart back monitoring the back line as well, but Parfit was very prominent. I thought he was terrific, and when you've got the forward talent in Jeremy Cameron and Tom Hawkins, you want to be creating as many chances as possible. It was great to see Jezza and Hawk out there together for 17 minutes. Good news is things with Jeremy Cameron don't look as bad as they seemed at first. You, know, you saw him getting taken to the hospital. It seems like that was all just precautionary. His lungs are most importantly fine. His ribs seem to be fine. It's a hip pointer. Yeah, it's just a hip pointer, and there's a chance he's up for selection against the Swans this week. Nonetheless, Hawkins played great. And I thought there were times last year when Hawkins was great and times when he was a little quiet or games where, you know, he would miss that first kick and he would just never be able to shake that off and end up kicking like 1-4 for the game. But he got four early and he just looked awesome. So did Patrick Dangerfield. It was a quiet game for Cam Guthrie. He ended up with 25 disposals, big second half disposals wise. But I really liked the way... Instead, Parfit was kind of the guy who asserted himself in the midfield and kind of played directly because Guthrie, when you see him making his plays, they're more sort of sweeping motions. I think you're able to play Guthrie more in your back 50 then, and I think that actually works really well. Only real negatives, I thought, were Zach Guthrie wasn't great, um, Sean Higgins struggled, but those are guys who can be replaced very quickly. Sam DeConan got concussed and is going to miss this week, but you're getting Jed Buse back. They did that without Jed Buse as well, which is amazing because I think he's just the most underrated guy. Luke Dollhouse played great. Tyson Stengel made a case to stay. I think you can already see how much Eddie Betts helps just with keeping Stengel in line. Patrick Dangerfield won the Tom Wills medal. Pretty much everything went well, and now you're getting Mitch Duncan and Jed Buse back. This is the sort of rhythm you want to see out of the Cats. They played to their abilities. They played a style that complements what they have. And it was just a fun watch as a Cats fan. It was a pretty thorough ass kicking. It was a fun watch as a non-Cats fan as well. One question that I have is, with those couple questionable spots in Higgins and Guthrie, do you think just because of how dominating this performance was that they're going to get the green light rather than maybe giving someone like... Ryan Myers or who the hell knows, Quentin Darkle, who's locked up in a basement in Geelong somewhere? I think they'll get their chance. You know, Myers should be ready round three, maybe round four. He's going to a sort of rehab assignment in the VFL this week, just like Mitch Duncan did last week. Sounds like Duncan's going to be ready to go. And if the midfield play was this good without him, what could it be with him? As for the Bombers, obviously the huge bright spot was Nick Martin bagging a handful, even though the last couple or few of those came when the game had already been well decided. Other things for Essendon, uh, Mac Welfie was active, seemed to have done well in space in the back and middle thirds. Other than that, just 
Not many promising signs, especially with Langford being out eight to ten weeks now, in addition to not having a couple other key pieces. They ended up playing with only 21 guys instead of 22 for a lot of the game when Jaden Laverde went down, because you already lost Langford very early. Nick Martin was definitely the most positive sign for them. Well, if it was all right, one thing that I think they could build off is the way they kind of spaced Geelong out when they got opportunities in the forward 50, at least in the second half. And that's something the Cats could definitely improve on. There are times when they get spaced out and kind of be stop and starts in the forward 50, which also then that prevents Tom Stewart from really manning the line and sweeping around and making his plays. But make no mistake, this was a very convincing showing for the Cats and I think it's going to be the benchmark for them. You know, sometimes you're a little worried about, you know, if you start this well in round one, it's like, how do we improve from here? I think there are still a few ways to improve, but I think this is going to provide a really good benchmark moving forward, especially when you consider the personnel. This could have been tough, but both teams were playing shorthanded, so that largely evened out in, in hindsight. Now, the Cats will be playing the Swans next week at the SCG, and the Swans are coming off a win in Sydney Derby 23. It was an away game at Accor Stadium, Stadium Australia. Even though there were more Swans fans and even though the crowd could have nearly fit into the showground next door, it was Greater Western Sydney 13-14-92, defeated by Sydney 17-10-112. I called that Buddy would not get a thousand goals in this one. I had a feeling that with all the attention on him, there would be this kind of psychological thing going against him maybe, and also just getting the Giants to have more eyes on him. Phil Davis largely did quite well against Buddy, but that just opened up the opportunity for Luke Parker, among others, to really assert themselves all over the forward half. That was a team that at the start of the year, we had mentioned when we did our preview that the Giants' defense was a concern because they're pretty good up front. Their midfield's pretty good, but that defense was very porous, especially in the fourth quarter when Sydney really started to pull away. You know, Sydney took a five-point lead by the end of the third, then kicked another four goals in the fourth before really slowing down the tempo and letting things settle. It was interesting. It was such a high-scoring first half. Both teams were kicking really accurately. It looked for a while like we could be in for, you know, 250 combined points or something. Both teams could have kicked somewhere in the 120 to 130 range. That slowed down because the accuracy dropped a bit late in the second quarter. It was a strange one because you had, you know, it was kind of a slow-moving game at times, but teams were kicking so accurately. They're just... Until the second half, when Sydney really got going, there wasn't a lot of free-flowing, open-field play. Now, I will note that, along with Davis, Sam Taylor was up to man assignments. Davis's work would likely go underappreciated, and Taylor's as well, considering the game's result, though I think Davis should be an outside shot for votes. And Connor Iden was, I think, underappreciated fullback, but the rest of the defense is definitely an area of concern as a whole. As for the Swans, that second-year spotlight, again, as we expected, this was a deep first-year group last year, and they are continuing to shine into their sophomore campaign, you know, the first 80 minutes of it at least. Hayden McLean is still on the rookie list, and then Errol Golden was a very accurate kick again, and I think he really had a lot of things opening up for him with the extra attention on Buddy really throughout the forward half, because Golden is a 
midfielder that is playing pretty forward at times. As for the Giants, the goal kickers did shine all over the forward half in the first quarter and some parts of the second. It was nice seeing Harry Hemmelberg getting back on track, and Tom Green almost made us forget that Toby Green was out at times. That 25-0 run after they got down 18-7 was definitely kind of a look at this is what the Giants can do. When they're rolling, they look like a team with a lot of weapons. And one other guy I was really interested in was Daniel Lloyd. He had a huge first half and then was basically invisible in the second half. But early on, he looked awesome. And there's something to build off there, you know, even as a 30-year-old. I mean, consider how long some other people are playing now. Look at how long Buddy's playing. They were asking Sean Burgoyne about it during the game on 7. Do you expect to see more guys like yourselves playing into your late 30s? And with advancements in sports science and just understanding of how players can take care of themselves off the field, it's definitely possible. So if that's the case, if Daniel Lloyd can stay with a clean bill of health, definitely a possibility for him to continue improving even at his age. The other positive for the Giants before we shift back to talking about Sydney, Bobby Hill is such an opportunistic player. Any loose ball in his vicinity, he seems to manage to get on and turn into a chance. And that's kind of that team, like I said, when they're rolling, you're, you're kind of spinning around because they've got so many different guys who can finish things off in the forward end. And this is still without Toby Green. And no Brent Daniels. Remember, he's still down for a few, so that list Frank injury. Um, As for the Swans, though. Patty McCartan looked really sharp other than one really bad clanger, similar to what Nick Dacos did the night before. And just like Nick Dacos, Patty McCartan playing with his brother, in this case, his younger brother, Tom. Oliver Florent makes some wow plays. He's definitely the most exciting, whereas a lot of Sydney's roster is just really good fundamental football. Oliver Florent is the guy who's going to make the highlight reel more often than not. He was terrific as usual. Luke Parker as well can definitely have some of those highlight reel moments. But yeah, it is just a solid, steady, younger group emerging for the Swans. It's really kind of helping them stay more measured despite their youth, which is a very welcome sign. I think it's something that will allow John Longmire to use them as he sees fit going forward. A few stat lines to touch on. Isaac Heaney finishes with 25 disposals and three goals. Luke Parker kicked 5-1. James Robottom didn't score, but had 18 disposals, 10 tackles, 7 clearances. And that fourth quarter was just peak Sydney. Everyone getting involved. Um, Nick Blakey had a quietly nice game, which could help make up for Jordan Dawson's absence. Dane Rampey had a great chase-down tackle late in the game. Blakey actually was one of the tops in meters gained by far. He gained 646 meters. That's 81 more than anyone else and 200 more than anyone from the Giants. He was moving really well. Just as a closing remark, despite it only being 20 points, really a comprehensive win for the Swans. Looking forward to seeing how they continue to develop. But Ethan and I both realized, wait a minute, this is the giants Sydney Derby home game for the year? Yeah, it really didn't look like it. I'd say it was at least two-thirds swans. I'm surprised it was only 25,000 with the factor of, you know, there's an outside chance Buddy could kick 1,000 tonight. And just, it's the Sydney Derby. I remember last year, the one they actually got to play in Sydney was a great crowd at the SCG with the Giants pulling out a late win. And I'm also just wondering, you know, is this representative of 
Greater Western Sydney Giants, still lacking a solid fan base, a decade, and a grand final appearance into their AFL life. Which is too bad, because the actual on-field product of the Sydney Derby tends to be really exciting. I mean, it was a confusing first half that was hard to make a lot out of, but this is a reliably fun rivalry to watch, whereas some of the other non-Victorian rivalries tend to lack behind. You can almost always count on this being a close game, and even if it ended up being a 20-point margin, you know, GWS led by nine at halftime. It was a five-point game after the third. This really kept fans compelled for the entire 80 minutes of play, and I just wish there were more fans there to see it. Another game that was surprisingly compelling from both our perspectives was the nightcap on Saturday The Brisbane Lions and Port Adelaide at the Gabba. Ethan had christened this game the Gilded Grapple for how it had disappointed in past seasons. Despite looking good on the outside, hence the Gilded. Of course, yes. This one was not Gilded. I think it was gold or at least another very prominent medal all the way through. Brisbane Lions 11-14-80 over Port Adelaide 10-9-69. Nice, as Ethan would probably say. Yep, I, I just said it before him. This was a seesaw affair that I did not expect to be nearly as good as it was, and I know Ethan wishes he saw it in real time. Yeah, I slept through a bunch of this one because it started at somewhere between 4 and 5 a.m. in Indiana, so that just wasn't going to fly. The first quarter was pretty shitty. Fair enough. But it also demonstrated how important Robbie Gray is in terms of the players that Port Adelaide just can't afford to lose. He came back the mid to late part of the quarter, but... His knee issue early on definitely slowed down things even further for them. Mitch Robinson had that big collision with Xavier Dersma that ended up doing some decent damage to him. I know Dersma had his left clavicle issue there. He was subbed out for Stephen Motlop at quarter time. Prognosis is better on Dersma, I believe, than was initially thought, but Motlop was a good presence. And if he's going to be one of your injury subs, that's... A good position to be in. Robinson's one-match ban has stood, so he'll be missing against Essendon. The end to the first half was really interesting, and that's one of those plays that you usually think, ooh, if that happens, it's really hard to win. Joe Danher took one of the best marks of anyone in round one. I'd say the mark of the round. And then, instead of trying to kick the goal, he dumps it off to Nakia Cockatoo as the siren sounds, and they don't score, and they go into half trailing 34-30. to That's something that could definitely bring down a lot of teams, but with the depth that the Brisbane Lions had, it didn't completely kill them, even though Port did get out to a very good start in the third quarter and ended up leading by 15, so extending their lead by 11 going into three-quarter time. At one point in the third, that lead was in the mid-20s before Brisbane really made their push. So it definitely did affect them, but it didn't condemn them as it would a momentum killer for a lot of other teams. And in that second quarter as well, speaking of injuries and also speaking of Mitch Robinson, Alira Lear got banged up with a right ankle issue in the middle of the second quarter. He returned after halftime, but his prognosis is not good at all. It's looking like a syndesmosis issue that could keep him out for multiple months. And we'll touch on this again in our round two preview. 
is looking like five to six weeks, and they have a pretty favorable schedule during that stretch. So if there's a time to lose a guy like that, it's now. It's never ideal to lose a game when you have a nice lead like that on the road at a place where teams usually don't come out with wins. But I don't think it's as doom and gloom for Port Adelaide as you make it sound like. I think my perspective is definitely colored by the fact that I was watching that live and seeing not only Alir going down, but Trent McKenzie going down with a hyperextended left knee. That looked like something that could have been a lot worse. But as we've learned in the past day or two, it's not nearly as bad. And even though Port, you know, were firing on all cylinders, they're without Charlie Dixon. The loss just stung on a lot of levels, but it definitely is smoothed over a little bit by the fact that it's you know, a tough interstate match to open the season, plus the fact that it did end up being close in the end, although that also leaves open the conversation of what could have been. A career night for Dan Houston was wasted as well. He kicked two goals, 36 disposals, 12 marks. This is going to be one of those cases where you're going to have a player who lost be the best on ground, probably. I think there's no doubt about that. He was excellent, you know, after a year of seeing Ollie Wines as the lead guy in just about every statistical category, it was the Dan Houston show. Um, for clarification, I believe the largest lead for Port Adelaide was 24. With four minutes left in the third, it was 61 to 37. And at that point, you think, man, Port Adelaide's really going to pull this thing out. They've got a great thing going. And even after they had gotten behind, Houston scored to cut it to 73-67 late. And I thought they were right there. There was also a shot where McCluggage had a really bad miss that kept the deficit at 23, but then Danaher scored shortly after. And I think you could tell around then, and this is one of the things that you get watching a match after the fact with kind of this knowledge that you wouldn't have in real time. You could see that's when Aldir really started to feel it in his ankle, and that's when Brisbane really started capitalizing in the forward end. But I think that's where you could show some concern if you worry about what's life without a leader going to look like the next few weeks. But I think it's different losing a player of his caliber mid-game versus entering a game knowing you're not going to have him. I think it's a completely different thing. And it was also the moment where he realized, okay, Danaher isn't scarred by what happened before. You saw him, you know, laughing a bit going into halftime, but... Who knows, that could be a facade knowing, oh gosh, Chris Fagan's going to kill me in the change rooms. No, Danaher was past it. Also, why the hell is his goal song Let It Go? I don't know, usually the explanation for something like that, you know, it's like whether it's a player's goal song or a baseball player's walk-up song is typically kids ask for it. You know, whether it's your kid or just a kid in the crowd or something, but that's that's my guess. He ended up kicking 4-3, so it was a pretty busy night for him. It was interesting looking at the stats, who was prominent and who was quiet. Charlie Cameron didn't score until late. Cam Rayner, 13 disposals, he kicked 0-2. I was hoping he'd get a goal and get the reception he deserved, but it'll happen. Uh, Brandon Starcevich, very quiet game, just nine disposals. Connor Rosie, five disposals, and he kicked 1-1. So it was a strange game. I also thought maybe it was the Charlie Dixon factor, but you barely saw Mitch Georgiotis. He had one goal, one behind. Jeremy Finlayson just kicking one behind. I think with Dixon in there, it changes a lot, and it makes that Port Adelaide front line a lot more devastating. But I don't know how much of that is a factor and how much was it maybe just... I was really drinking the Kool-Aid from what they showed in the Community Series. Within the next couple weeks, we should get an idea of just how much of this is Charlie Dixon's absence. Just like in the next couple weeks, we'll get a glimpse of 
just how much Alir's absence beats. But again, I think it's a pretty cushy part of the schedule for him to miss. They've got Hawthorne, then Adelaide Showdown. Then it gets a little tougher with Melbourne and Carlton. Then they've got the Eagles and then the Saints. So I think this is an opportunity where if you had to miss a earlier for a few weeks, this is probably a stretch of the schedule where you could tolerate it. Moving on to the Sunday action. I was thinking that Hawthorne and North Melbourne would be a pretty compelling match to watch after the fact. But it was damn interesting to watch live as well. Hawthorne ended up coming home by 20, starting the Sam Mitchell era successfully. Hawthorne 11-12-78 defeated North Melbourne 8-10-58. So yeah, each of the three debutante coaches started off with wins, which might be a first in AFL history. Something that I did realize immediately for North Melbourne, yeah, it's kind of weird to start with the losing team on these notes, considering, you know, how things have started for the other six that we've talked about thus far. But for North Melbourne, Tristan Jerry started in the ruck and Todd Goldstein began on the bench. He came on after seven minutes of clock time and went to the forward line and Jerry did hold his own. And so that's definitely an encouraging sign for North going forward, especially with how much Goldstein was able to accomplish at the forward line. He was really the only right spot on the forward line the second half for the Kangaroos. I believe he had two of their three goals after the break. Yeah, Jaden Stevenson was basically nowhere to be found. You know, North Melbourne was able to play with a really tall forward line, but in turn, a pretty slow one. I think there are going to be some teams where that size could really create problems and you could just kind of overload the size rather than speed. But for most games, you'll need a mix of both. And I think it's pretty clear as Jaden Stevenson goes, the team goes. And though they got off to a nice start, largely fueled by Luke Davies' Uniac. He had nine disposals in the first six minutes of clock time. This ended up being a day where North, despite leading 17-38, they ended up getting outscored from there 61-20. to And that 17-38 score came on the end of a 21-1 run for North Melbourne in the first 11-16 clock time of the second quarter. Meanwhile, Hawthorne fired back with a 34-point run between the second and early third to lead 51-38 by then. There was a huge mistake to keep that run going when I think Larky might have been called for a free against him, though it might have been Cameron Zerhar when Coleman Jones was kicking a goal after getting a free for holding the ball. That was Sicily getting in North's head there. Commentators didn't seem to be too in favor of that free, that maybe the retaliator got punished more, but the call was made and Hawthorne was able to extend that run a bit more. There were some promising moments, you know, getting the goal in the first 30 seconds, Jason Horn Francis scoring his first career goal, Jai Simpkin looked really sharp. It's amazing how much Simpkin has improved just in the time that we've started watching. No one would have thought really after 2019 that in just two years' time he'd be winning the Sid Barker medal, but there he was. One major negative was losing Ben Mackay early on, one of your better defenders, and that's a team that's pretty thin defensively to begin with. Losing him really hurts. Another oddity for North Melbourne for this game as a whole. North Melbourne had three hyphenated last names in play. You had Callum Coleman-Jones, the Richmond edition, Jason Horn-Francis, and Luke Davies-Uniac, and then you had a fourth hyphenated player with Denver Granger-Barris for Hawthorne. 
Coleman Jones also did reasonably well in the ruck. Wasn't asked as much as Jerry. It is good to see again North be able to have some versatility in that regard. Yes, Todd Goldstein is the hit-out king, but he's getting up there in age. He's not going to be around forever. And it's good to see that the team, in the ruck at least, is pivoting toward being in a good position in his absence eventually. Meanwhile, is Todd Goldstein related to noted Ravenclaw student Anthony Goldstein? You know, he does kind of have that wizardry about him in the ruck, so I wouldn't entirely be surprised. I don't know, though. Was Goldstein a Quidditch player? I think so, and he's a half-blood wizard, so if the muggle side was the Goldstein side... The lore grows. The lore grows. Maybe this isn't just a funny coincidence. As for Hawthorne, Chad Wingard, very noticeable with the long sleeves and bleached hair. First time I'd ever seen Hawthorne have the long sleeves like that. Honestly, not entirely opposed to it, though obviously I wouldn't want the entire team to go like that. Wingard had a couple goals in a row late that really helped solidify things. But the biggest player all over the ground was one that we weren't sure was going to play and one that we absolutely love watching in Chakwath Joth. The stat line doesn't do it justice at all. Not he nearly. Was, he was everywhere. You know, a lot of his disposals were quick, so it's not like he covered a lot of ground while holding the ball, but he played a really sharp game. You can see how everything just kind of flows through him. 24 disposals at 84%. That is very good efficiency considering how he was roving all over the oval. It was great to see that Sam Mitchell gave him that green light to move about and nine intercept possessions as well. On the forward half of the oval, Mitch Lewis was very prominent early on. Two goals and three marks of the 450 in the first Eight and a half minutes of clock time, 13 minutes real time. Ended with 3-1, and whereas he wasn't as prominent later on, Jack Gunston emerged after struggling to finish early on. Really, he was prominent in that space all the way through. He consistently got the right matchups and just the right amount of space to himself, but he couldn't finish until the end of the second quarter and then ended up with three goals, the middle of which was his 400th AFL goal. Another big game from Dylan Moore. Now, for those of you that don't follow baseball, I like to say that Dylan Moore is the most versatile player in baseball because not only does he play left field, third base, and second base for the Seattle Mariners, he's also halfway across the world playing for Hawthorne, and he racked up 19 disposals to go with six tackles and scored a goal. I'd say that's pretty cool, you know, being able to do that while getting ready to play the Major League Baseball season. You know, he's the same person, right? Just like the uh, broadcasters a few years ago on a spring training game thought that a white outfielder named Jacoby Jones was the same guy as the African-American guy who ran back a 108-yard kickoff in the Super Bowl. Same guy, right? And also caught the mile-high miracle before that. Are you fucking kidding me? Just remember, there are not multiple Dylan Moores. He is the only Dylan Moore. Absolutely. Just like how there's one Jacoby Jones, apparently. Other notes, it's weird. Despite Hawthorne winning, it seems that more of my notes on this one were about North. I think Aaron Hall was just quietly a massive possession contributor. 31 disposals, 869 meters gained. That is a ridiculous amount of ground gain, and it definitely shows that he's not someone to overlook. But the big North Melbourne concern, of course, is the forward line was absent the last two and a half quarters, and 
yeah, Stevenson was basically non-existent. And considering he was a bright spot last year, even with Jason Horn Francis emerging, Stevenson is going to need to re-emerge in order for North Melbourne to get above that very, very bottom tier. Another bright spot for Hawthorne, Finn McGinnis scored his first career goal in his fourth game. Good to see him emerge. Interestingly, he was also called for running too far earlier on, and that's the first time I can remember someone actually being called for that. And it also wasn't the last time in the round. So you saw it twice that day. One of the overarching themes for the round across all nine matches was goals off center clearances. North seemed really dangerous off center clearances. Is that one of their strengths or is that a weakness for Hawthorne? I'm leaning more towards it being a Hawthorne weakness because when you're playing North, their strengths are a short list that you're usually able to anticipate. So I would think that's something that Hawthorne knew about, but nonetheless struggled with. And that could be a major weakness for the Hawks moving forward. Moving on to the best game of the round that neither of us expected would be the best game of the round. Holy cow, Adelaide and Fremantle. And Ethan, you wish that you were awake through all of this one. And I am so glad that I was because I was glued to my computer and to my TV because I was mirroring it to my TV at that point. Adelaide 12-10-82 defeated by Fremantle 11-17-83. It's another one of those Fremantle wins where they can't kick accurately from set shots or up close really, but somehow they managed to get the win. And that was a huge concern for Fremantle last season. They had had, I believe, 15 of their 22 games last year where they kicked more behinds than goals. And I believe it was said during the broadcast that they were the worst kicking team within 15 meters last year. And yet they came through on Sunday despite that. And despite having some key outs in Matt Five, Sean Darcy, and Matt Tabiner, of course, Adelaide had their big outs as well in Laird, Seedsman, and Walker, who's not going to be back until round four at the earliest. It's interesting, even though Fremantle kicked poorly and they missed some really close ones. I remember Bailey Banfield in particular with a really bad miss. And Rory Lobb as well could not find his footing early on, even though he's no longer stuttering on his run-up. His technique is still not great. He kicked 2-3 and his misses were crucial. What's funny is still, I thought that the way the game transpired, it was Adelaide that had some really bad misses down the stretch, they came back to haunt them after they had rallied from down 25. I think the biggest lead was actually closer to 28, but it was 25 at the half. And out of all of that, still, it was the Dockers who ended up capitalizing off Adelaide, missing a few opportunities that could have put it away. The Crows got up by 18 and then watched Fremantle finish the game on a 21-2 run, taking the lead for good in the final four minutes, and then capping that off with the... Heath Chapman's save that's going to be another one that's right up there as one of the plays of the year, I think. you know. And after the siren goal is cool, but a save in the final 10 seconds from open play like that, I think that's pretty rare. That's an extraordinary play that could be remembered for years. Whereas after the siren goals, you know, they all come off as set shots. They're cool. They're fun. We'll be all over them if they happen this year. We usually are in for two to three a year, the way the league's gone lately, but I thought this was just such a cool ending that honestly left me speechless. Also awestruck by a goal in the first quarter. I know that we mentioned that the goal kicking was definitely a problem for both sides, but 
there was still some offensive firepower going both ways. Fremantle, potentially the goal of the round for Michael Frederick with the tap over Andrew McPherson leading to the soccer. Meanwhile, for Adelaide, Josh Rochelle joined the first kick club in the first quarter and ended up adding at least one in all the other quarters. He had two in the third with that second one in that quarter, his fourth giving Adelaide their first lead. So welcome to the AFL for him. Very nice to see another new face emerging for Adelaide, especially with Riley Philthorpe being quiet for a large portion of the contest. I think Josh Rochelle's performance, I think it was better than Nick Martin's because his goals came in a tight game in situations that really mattered, whereas some of Nick Martin's goals came when the two teams were just playing out the string. This was an incredible all-encompassing performance for Rochelle. Even though he did hit the post once, he still kicked 5-1. He had a terrific game and... When you get Taylor Walker back in there, that's a scary combination. And I think the Crows are going to give teams some trouble. I think add to that as well, the sharpshooting of Darcy Fogarty, perhaps the most accurate mid to long range kick in the competition and someone who I don't think is valued nearly enough from a lot of statistical points of view. This is not a great Crows team by any stretch, but I don't think they're wooden spoon material. I think they're rising past that. And I think that forward group is going to bring something. Hopefully this isn't just a flash in the pan for Rochelle. I'm excited to see more of him moving forward. A couple other interesting things. It was hot as balls out there. It was like 32 degrees Celsius, right around 90 Fahrenheit. But I think the Adelaide Oval looks better in the daytime than any other ground. I mean, a packed MCG for the grand final is amazing, but, you know. On a round in, round out basis? Yeah. An MCG that's, you know, a little under 40% full, like you had for Hawthorne North. Nah, it doesn't look anywhere near as cool as the Adelaide Oval in the daytime. You can see the scoreboard. You got the fans standing on the berm. I think it's just a great venue. The architects and everyone who's been tasked with keeping up the Adelaide Oval, they do a great job keeping its old character while also bringing in modern stands and everything. You can always see, like, food trucks in the background and stuff. That's definitely at the top of my list of stadiums I want to see a game at. It is for me as well, even being an Eagles fan, and we'll talk plenty about them in just a bit, but definitely Adelaide Oval is probably the top of that bucket list. Hey, Portland, the Eagles have had a couple of great contests over there, both going the Eagles way, the ones that I'm thinking of after the siren, so maybe I'd been in line to see another one of those. Turning back towards what we saw between the Talkers and Crows, It was interesting. Fremantle looked dominant early on, like I said, 25-point lead at halftime, only to get outscored 39-4 to in the third, and that's when those kicking woes got even worse. I mean, they were bad to begin with. They kicked 8-9 in the first half. They kicked 0-4 in the third, and they were just getting crushed overall after being the better team pressure-wise in the first quarter. You know, Adelaide was lucky to get out of that first quarter down by 17. Jordan Clark was a big part of that first quarter And a big part of the match overall, you expected the former cat to emerge immediately, and he did. 20 disposals at 80%, 716 meters gained. Fremantle provides a much better opportunity for him to play to his skill set than the cats did. So I'm happy to see it for him. He's entertaining to watch. Early on, it was really Jimmy Rowe, the only reason that Adelaide stayed in it. And then the third quarter, Rochelle started to dominate. This is a game that, again, I really regret not being able to see live because not only was there a great finish. I mean, I woke up and saw the final couple minutes after Frio had taken the lead for good. But this game had so many twists and turns, so many times where you thought something was going to be a huge play. 
it was like a well-written script, you know, with all sorts of cliffhangers and hooks and different points to jump off at. If you were just watching this without much knowledge of the sport, even, you'd be on the edge of your seat. If this was the first footy game you ever watched, you'd be thrilled and you'd want to see a thousand more of these. It was just, this was amazing. I have so much fun. I am compelled to show the highlights of this to some people back in Berkeley to try to get them hooked on AFL. Absolutely. And thinking about Rochelle and Jimmy Rowe, who I'm shocked that we had mentioned up to that point, and then considering what Andrew Brayshaw did. He controlled the first half, was a clear ranking leader at the half, which definitely reflected very well. He was, geez, 29 points ahead at the half, 75 to Ben Key's 46. He was quieted in the third quarter, then reasserted himself in the fourth. Between Brayshaw, Clark, and the two young R's, Rochelle and Rowe, I have no idea, you know, how those votes are going to shake out, especially with how close the game was and how the kicking inaccuracies played into things. But overall, these are two teams that are definitely both on the upswing compared to where they were in 2020 and in 2021. And I'm interested to see how this climb will continue for both of them. Looking at Fremantle in particular, I just think that there is huge potential for them early on in this campaign to really establish themselves because considering that they're going to be getting Fife and Darcy back soon and Tavener shortly after that, and their schedule is looking pretty favorable for this next stretch as well. They've got St. Kilda at home, round two. The Eagles hosting the Western Derby round three, but they don't have to go anywhere. And then hosting the Giants round four before traveling to Melbourne and playing Essendon round five. I honestly would not be shocked to see Fremantle sitting with 20 points in mid-April, considering what they don't have at this point. That is, if they're able to get their kicking under control. It's so interesting seeing the mix of reactions from both commentators and Fremantle supporters. You have the positive end, which I'm leaning towards, that no matter how it happened, you won without Nat Fife, you won without Matt Taverner, you won without Sean Darcy. The more negative side of it is we barely beat a lousy team. We still kick poorly. We didn't look like a finals team. But I think when you're missing players of Fife, Taberner, and Darcy's caliber, and you're on the road, you take the four points any way you can get them. So I would say there's a lot to build off, even if there were some things that definitely need some hammering out, such as Liam Henry being basically invisible. Frederick got off to a great start and then played a pretty weak second half. I think that kind of gives you a glimpse of what this team can do. When Michael Frederick's doing his thing, they're really dangerous. I guess down the stretch, it seemed like they leaned a little bit more on Sam Squidkowski, Darcy Tucker, Caleb Sarong. At least that's what I got out of watching it. And what I got out of it as well, definitely Squidkowski emerged in the fourth, even when he had to go off for blood. It was nice to see Wayne Miller back for Adelaide, even if he had a relatively quiet game. Still ended up with... 14 disposals, but this was a super entertaining game, even without not just the guys who were out injured or suspended, but also Elliot Himmelberg basically vanished. He's been trending downwards, and I thought he could have been an impact player. He certainly wasn't in this one. And that's just part of a trend that I think started with him last year. I'm not really sure what Matthew Nix has to get into him, and I'm not sure what Justin Longbeer has to get 
into his side after this one, but obviously he's in a better situation than his opposite coaching number simply because, hey, we got the four points, and I think that really for round one, it's not really ideal on the oval, but I think it's pretty good in a lot of respects to say, okay, we got the four points, but there is a whole lot of room for growth. It starts here, and yes, there's the ability to go down, but I think Fremantle also has one of the highest ceilings out of any team in the competition this year, which is crazy to say considering they weren't even a finals team last year. You can really measure the capability of a coach when you see how they respond to an ugly win. A good coach will not just sit on it and be satisfied. A good coach looks at it and says, we won. Imagine how good we can be if we actually play well. It'll definitely be a coaching character test for Justin Longmuir in that respect. Before we move on to the last game of the round, I do want to say if there was a smother of the week, it would be the one by Brody Smith in the third quarter on Michael Frederick. That was awesome. And it got a great reaction out of the crowd. That was a terrific play. And that shouldn't go unnoticed, regardless of who won this one. Now, if there was any real smothering done in the nightcap, West Coast Eagles, 12-8-80, defeated by Gold Coast Suns, 16-11-107. I say it was a smothering of the Eagles list that occurred earlier on in the week when you're considering, you know, just how much of the forward and midfield core were missing for the Eagles. Now, it was good to see Willie Rioli back. Don't ask why he wasn't in the past two years. Never ask a woman her age, a man his salary, or Willie Rioli why he missed the last two seasons. Yes, that was a meme that I made and posted on the at Americans Footy Twitter account, which I hope you're following if you're tuned in to us, and if not, definitely follow it because you'll get our in-game insight and other things that we're thinking of throughout the week, but Rioli got ovations pretty much with every discernible touch, and he was really the brightest figure to have out there considering Tim Kelly had COVID, Liam Ryan was in protocols, both are expected back for round two, Oscar Allen out, Jack Darling out. Just a whole lot of people out, and it definitely quieted things on that front. Though it did allow for Jermaine Jones to emerge, which was another pleasant surprise. He was a pretty good use early on. 15 disposals at around 87% by halftime. Cooled off a bit in the second half, but was a very welcome presence overall. And I also mentioned during the preview that Jack Petrocelli's speed would be crucial. That was definitely the case when it came to his role in kicking West Coast third and seventh goals in the first and third quarters, respectively. But really, the story is the Gold Coast Suns dominating through the midfield with the dynamite tandem of Matt Rowell and Tuke Miller. The question is, of course, how much of that was because... Raul and Miller are Raul and Miller, and how much of that was because of what the Eagles were lacking. Do you have any thoughts on that, Ethan? It was interesting that they didn't really start to take over the game until the fourth quarter when they really pulled away, but if you're the Eagles, there isn't that much to regret considering what you were missing. It sucks to give up four points at home, especially to 
a team that's usually at the bottom of the ladder, a team that had never beaten you on the road, but the circumstances were what they were. Overall, though, I thought this was a pretty impressive performance, obviously for Matt Rowell. I mean, 33 disposals, six tackles. Isaac Rankin kicks four goals to go with his 23 disposals. Tuke Miller, 29 disposals, 629 meters gained. His streak snaps of getting 30 just barely, and I think there was a question about whether he might have gotten one disposal in before halftime that wasn't counted, but I would not be shocked if the Suns keep going with their winning ways that you'll hear a lot of Rowell and Miller switching off between the twos and the threes in the Brownlow count. Overall, though, this was just a much more entertaining game when originally we'd kind of pegged this one as like a sickos committee type of game. We thought this could have been really bad. It actually ended up being pretty compelling, watchable, and ultimately, you know, the Suns pulled away down the stretch and you could give them a big asterisk for the team they were going up against. But this was entertaining and watchable and watchable was honestly more than I expected. Watchable really from the beginning. It was great seeing Tom Barras get... Goal number one in game 100 in the final minute of the first quarter. First. He's a Jake Kolejashny wannabe. Yeah, fair enough. All right, Eagles Barrickers, which one of you is getting the butt tattoo? He is the first player Barras to score his first goal in his 100th game in VFL-AFL history. There was really, after really not hearing much from Mavier Chol at all in the first quarter, he really started emerging toward the end of the second, and then in the third and the fourth, he started each quarter with really impressive goals that were both team sequences, but he finished them both, so obviously he'll get the credit for it, and Levi Casbold as well, another important addition there in that forward group for the Gold Coast Suns. It was super weird seeing him in those colors, but he, after struggling with kicking a goal early, solidified his presence and calmed down and was a, a less prominent factor than Chol and Rankin, but at least from my assessment, but was definitely key to just kind of giving them a bit of an anchor there with his veteran presence and just keeping them on an even keel along with Jack Lacocious emerging, which took about until halftime as well. You can really track kind of all these players emerging at the same time with Gold Coast as to, you know, where the trends were in terms of the quarter scores and the scoreworm, which we absolutely love. But it was pretty indicative of the pace of this game. The Eagles started off hot and cooled down pretty steadily, I'd say, wondering, you know, how much just a lack of their main pieces led to just not having the stamina they needed where some of those players who were thrust into more important roles would have otherwise been interchange players. But Gold Coast got hotter and hotter, and I'm wondering, you know, how long is it going to take for them to activate like that when they're up against a more complete forward and midfield unit? I will say, though, the Eagles' defensive core was largely what it should be in terms of McGovern being back there, as well as Barras and Chan Hearn and Rotham. It was hard to think of the Eagles staying in it without McGovern's role in the defensive 50, but his rare error that led to Holman's goal was really the sign for me like, okay, this one is trending in the wrong direction. I think it's game over from here. And I ended up being right. I think just my 
live reactions were probably more pessimistic than I am right now, considering just thinking back on what the Eagles lacked up front. If it was just my shock at you are losing to the Gold Coast Suns, but if the Suns board group and their midfield tandem can stay as hot as they were, it can prove their worth against, you know, a strong, complete side like Melbourne next week, then they might be something to look out for, which is more than you could say about them throughout their history. Really, it was only, you know, one player or two players at a time that were prominent for them before. Let's see if Raul and Miller and the rest of the cast ahead of them, as well as a bit behind them, can really propel them forward into their biggest successes yet. When ranking Ainsworth, Casbolt, and Scholl combined for 10 goals, they're in pretty good shape, and they got 10 out of them. One other thing that was really interesting, even though Nathanui had his 29 hitouts and the Eagles overall one hitouts 39 to 35, it was the Suns who were really able to get going from the center circles. So I don't know if that's going to be their model moving forward or if it was capitalizing on a weakened Eagles midfield. But it's interesting to see, and I think there's something there. And how they handle that moving forward could be indicative of Stuart Dew's coaching ability and whether or not he's got any longevity at the position. Credit to Jared Woods for more than standing his own against Nanui and then really dominating against the second and third rank Ruckman for the Eagles because you really don't have that success out of the circle without a Ruckman who's able to at least kickstart that maybe half of the time, if not more. And Wits definitely did that. He was called upon against one of the most impactful players of the past decade and held his own and then emerged when Nat knew he was off. That was maybe one of the flattest Eagles crowds I've ever seen. I don't know how much that was the injuries, how much that were crowd restrictions. Fuck you, McGowan. But it seemed oddly flat there. Usually it's a pretty enthusiastic gathering and that seemed to be lacking. And I don't know, again, how much of that is just lowered expectations? How much of that is capacity limits? Usually capacity limits hadn't caused that in the past, so that's something to wonder about. They really only came alive for Willie Rioli and that one play of his where I was like, okay, this is what he can bring was also my realization of okay, Yeah, I can understand some of the downside to his presence and just his recklessness. I was shocked that that free kick was not paid to Matt Rowland and ended up leading to a couple goal turnaround in the Eagles' favor. But the contact was not deemed to be as intentional or at least as damaging as it potentially could have been. So Rioli's one-game suspension was overturned. Just as the Adelaide Oval looks good in the daytime... Optus Stadium looks great in the late afternoon with the sunset and the long shadows. And that's kind of the time that I'm used to seeing games played there. So I'm glad that that complements it well, because whether or not it did, that's when games are going to get played there just off of the time zone situation. I think that just about covers it. I think that's one of those games similar to Fremantle Adelaide, where you're going to have more perspective on it in the coming weeks, I think will really tell us a lot about both of these teams. I think we'll be able to tell a lot more about the Suns very quickly based off of how the Eagles look this coming week against North Melbourne. Although that'll be a bit of a more complete Eagles team, still an injured one, but not quite as COVID depleted. As well as the Suns, 
being up at Metricon against Melbourne. Hopefully they'll get a good crowd to turn out for that because they deserve it based on the way they started the campaign. And hopefully we'll get to see our Lord and Savior, Boundary Reporter, three-time Premiership champion with the Brisbane Lions, the one and only Alistair Lynch. Well, regardless of whether it's a Fox footy game or a seven game, Lynchy might appear regardless based on what we saw for Brisbane and Port Adelaide. That was unexpected and definitely something that we both embraced in that moment. The more Lynchy, the better. All right, wrapping up real quick. Wanted to discuss, you know, any other thoughts. First off, Mark of the Week, we both agreed that it should be Joe Danaher's mark over Tom Jonas, even with his derp shortly thereafter. Um, other nominees were Tom DeConing against Nathan Broad and St. Kilda's Mason Wood over Jamie Elliott. For Gold Week, three candidates are Mabby Orchol finishing off a team goal to open the third quarter, Michael Frederick with the tap in the soccer, or Oliver Henry selling some candy and then breaking a tackle before scoring in Collingwood's win over St. Kilda. I'm of the belief that the Frederick goal should win it. As am I. It gives me some flavor of that Eddie Betts goal out of the air last year, but I'm honestly wondering if Fredericks is more impressive considering he was able to tap it over Andrew McPherson in order to make that happen. It's also impressive that Fremantle actually kicked a goal. And won despite not kicking as many goals as they did behind. Again, huge room for improvement for them. I'm just wondering how low their floor is considering how high their ceiling is. There might be another team like the Gold Coast Suns, where they have a very, very big gap between their floor and their ceiling. What do you say, other than, you know, the obvious in Geelong being, you know, the biggest winner of the round empirically, which team do you think has the most to take away from this one round positively? I think Carlton. I think not only winning, but beating Richmond. And this is one of those games that even if your season ends up being a stinker, This is one that meant a lot to the fans, and I think that's something that shouldn't be overlooked. Also, how many times are we going to hear broadcasters say how great it is to have fans back? If we took a drink every time, we'd be in the hospital. And then the other thing to note, is the rise in center bounce goal sustainable, or is that just, you know, early season energy perhaps, or maybe firmness of some of the grounds as we're getting toward the end of the summer? Maybe that'll go away? Well, there's a good piece by Cal Twomey on AFL.com that came out 15 hours ago, it says here, and it's one of the most effective implementations of the 6-6-6 rule. It was the highest total of points scored off center bounces since round 15 in 2018. The weather could be a factor. Teams getting used to each other's strengths and weaknesses. If you remember, scoring was higher to start last season as well before tapering off some. The weather could be a factor. Players' health could be a factor, but center bounces were definitely more prominent, and it was very enjoyable to watch. You had Collingwood get five of them. Hawthorne North is the only game with less than two. Most games had at least four. Most prominently, the Suns scoring six off center bounces and the Eagles, two. They combined for eight. GWS Sydney had six goals off center bounces as well. So maybe that's something that'll keep up. I think there will be some tactical adjustment to it, but... I definitely wouldn't mind having a few more center bounce goals than in years past. I think we're getting more towards a healthy balance there. Whereas, I mean, some of those 2020 games especially were so low scoring. Even 
without the factor of being shorter quarters. I think there's a good balance that we're approaching. And I think, once again, as the season goes on, we'll probably see scoring go down a bit. But I think we're in a much better state right now with it. Now, what about the holding the ball rule? Any thoughts there? Because that was obviously a prominent point heading into the round. Of course, with any rule change, it's going to be unclear as to just the extent to which it's going to be implemented. In principle, I like the idea that that you have to dispose of it immediately or get the call, but clearly that's not how it was called a lot of the time. You see some players getting spun around at least 180, some of them more than 360 degrees. It's going to take more than one round to judge whether the umpires are doing their job or not with the new rule. And then, of course, there's a question of what's really the point of really not even, I guess it's not changing the rules, but continually shifting these emphases when really it seems like neither the umpires nor the players have time to really process the changes over one season compared to the other. When there's a change every year, pretty much in some aspect or another, it does seem like the stand rule has been pretty solidified and it's clear at this point, you know, when the 50s are going to emerge from that. Speaking of rule changes, any thoughts on the umpire abuse situation? Because honestly, it seemed pretty low-key this first round. Yeah, it seemed like it was pretty well communicated, and most players just didn't say much when there was a call they didn't like. One other thing that I noticed, and I don't know if this seems to be something that's coincidental or not, but it seemed like there were fewer times where no prior was called and the ball up was given out of it. It seemed like there were just far more situations where a guy was just ruled as being tackled. Maybe that was just my impression, but it seemed like that happened a lot more. We saw far fewer balls up and far fewer chances for hit outs outside of the center circle other than on, you know, inbound throws. I'd like to see the statistics on that going back to, I guess, maybe round one last season. Not sure if Kaltumi has a piece on that, but definitely another trend to track statistically throughout the campaign. But considering how much we're talking about things that are going to be happening throughout the campaign, I think that's a sign that we're about done here talking about round one, and we're already looking ahead toward round two, which we'll be previewing, and we'll be coming to you with that in just another day or two. Yeah, I think that's just about it. One thing I do want to conclude with again, and this has nothing to do with Martin's performance happening against Geelong, because Nick Martin played great. But I still think Josh Rochelle was better and deserved the Rising Star Award. Even if you can make an argument that Martins came against better competition, I think Rochelle's performance was in much more meaningful situations, and he would be the one that I would have given the Rising Star Award to. Although, both played great. Both deserve a lot of recognition. I agree with you, though, that Rochelle merited the Rising Star. And how crazy is it that within a calendar year, this is twice now, that a crow has scored five on debut, and yet Adelaide has lost by less than a goal. Thinking back to the Anzac round last year when Riley Philthorpe bagged a handful in Launceston in that crazy affair where Adelaide, despite kicking 16-399, lost by three. See, I still remember Philthorpe much more for his goal against St. Kilda. That behind-the-back winner? That was insane. In Cairns, too. I forget exactly if the conditions were terrible, but it's Cairns, so they were probably terrible. Anyway, that's a great place to leave off here. Looking forward to round two. We're going to have more Thursday night footy with the 
Bulldogs and Blues. We've got Friday Night Footy between the Swans and Cats and so much more that'll come to you in the preview in the next couple days. We hope you've enjoyed this one. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Castle Media, K-A-S-S-E-L Media. You can find both of us together at American Footy. I am at BenjaminHKZ01 on Twitter and Brian Harambe, who is, I believe, making noise outside Ethan's door right now, is on Instagram at cat named Brian. Once again, we are the Castle Brothers. This is Americans Watching the Footy. And uh, I guess between now and the next time we come to you, Ethan, any plans? I'm going to go watch some college baseball tomorrow and maybe get a nice deli sandwich. I've kind of been on a deli sandwich kick lately. It's kind of become my thing all of a sudden again. As for me, I'm going to be sleeping and then editing this. And that's my life right now, and I do not mind because it's my spring break, and I don't have any assignments to worry about in the immediate. This is enough of an assignment for me, and it's one I actually enjoy. All right, thanks again for tuning in. As always, we would love it if you engaged with us, whether that be through giving us reviews, just giving us money for no reason, or perhaps best of all, just talking with us on Twitter, whether that be through DMs or public conversations giving your perspective on the sport, helping us expand our horizons and our knowledge of footy, because even though we'd like to think we're more knowledgeable than just about anyone else within, you know, a 30-mile radius, or maybe more than that, there's still a lot we have to learn. So on that note, be sure to keep in touch, be sure to keep engaging. We love sparking conversation about this amazing sport. That was a super entertaining round one, and we look forward to doing it again, starting in just a couple days. 